All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you got them, uh, and turn to 1 Peter. This is the beginning of our, uh, of our series in 1 Peter. Um, suffering, persecution, holiness, and hope. Those are some of the themes that we're going to be immersing ourselves in uh, this fall, again, as we start 1 Peter. We're going to end the series in Thanksgiving. Um, in some ways, this is going to be challenging for us. It's a challenging book for us. And it's going to be challenging because the biggest challenge that some of us face is being unfollowed on Facebook. All right? So when we start talking about things like suffering and persecution, a lot of us have not bled an incredible amount in our lives, given how we've grown up, maybe given the town or towns that we have grown up in. But following Jesus, what's interesting about the life and the times that we're in right now is that following Jesus is ceasing to be the most popular lifestyle to live, okay? So in many ways, uh, this whole, I go to church on the weekends, I was born into a Christian family kind of Christianity many of us have grown up around is fading into the obscurity that it needs to fade into. All right, if you're following me on that, because the two questions a Christian is going to be increasingly asked as we kind of go through the life and times, as those things unfold, the two questions that you are going to be increasingly asked is this, do you really believe that's true? And the other one is, do you really believe that's wrong? And so that kind of, that, that kind of encapsulates some of, the, some of the, the heart and the thought that is going to be coming out at you as people perceive that you guys were followers of Christ and that you are uh, devoted to this thing that we call the Christian uh, faith. And, and already our, our influence in culture is, is changing, which then becomes the catalyst for potential trials and suffering in us because we are not just the religion of the culture anymore. We're not just the religion of the day. In fact, many of you, some of you, have probably not grown up in the church, right? So some of these familiar terms and some of these familiar Bible stories that maybe some of us have taken for granted through the years, thinking that automatically people have, you know, heard the story of Jonah, the guy in the fish. A lot of us have grown up and we haven't, we have no clue. We don't even know what that is. And then so as we come into a relationship with Christ and we're faced with some of the realities of that, what's going to happen is we're going to get some pushback and we're going to get some good pushback because the church thrives when it's getting pushback. And we've seen that throughout the ages. The book of first Peter was written by the apostle Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Again, this is the same Peter who said and did, if we look in the New Testament, just some outlandish things, all right? This is a guy who has kind of a, a checkered and colorful past, right? Um, at one point, he rebuked Jesus, right? The, you know, the, the living embodiment of God, you know, in the flesh, he rebuked Jesus and then was uh, promptly rebuked by Jesus. That was Peter. Peter, at one point, walked on water with Jesus and then sunk in the water right next to Jesus, he said he would die for Jesus one time, right before denying Jesus three times. There was one time in Peter's life where he cut off a guy's ear for threatening Jesus before literally a minute later abandoning Jesus and running away on the night before Jesus' death, right? So again, this is a guy that has a colorful and checkered past the author of this book. I mean, this is not really a sample resume you're going to want to download from jobsearch.com, right? This is not Peter. This is not something, this is not something you're going to want to take and adopt into your own lifestyle. And yet what we're going to see as we go through this book, and this is really one of my favorite books of the Bible, we're going to see that Jesus changed at some point, at one point at the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, he changed Peter's name. He had plans for Peter. Jesus knew all that stuff that Peter had done, and he had plans for Peter. He actually changed Peter's name to Rocky. I'm just using a little modern vernacular we can all tie ourselves into. And this is what he said. He said, Rocky, he said, I'm going to use you to build the church, right? And again, you just heard all those things I laid out about that guy, right? He's going to use that guy to build the church, and he did. So th this morning... Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take sort of an introduction of sorts into the book of 1 Peter where we're going to see that Peter's takeoff approach here as we just get into the first five verses is encouraging a people 
who are experiencing real suffering for their faith. And what's great about it is that Peter knew something about suffering for his faith because after Jesus died and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven and Peter started this, all this church planning network stuff that he did, he started suffering for his faith. It was different times. There was a cost for saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. There was a cost to it back then. And so he is somebody, as he's writing a letter to a series of people and churches in different regions, he's somebody who understands a little bit what it's like to live in a place where saying, I believe in Jesus means something and that it might cost you something. And so our main point this morning is we're kind of getting into this introduction, learning a little bit about the direction and the theme of 1 Peter. Our main point this morning is simply this, is that in his mercy... God has caused us to be reborn. And he's caused us to be reborn to the living hope that is his son, Jesus Christ. And ironically enough, it's in our suffering, it's in our discomfort, and a lot of you know what suffering and discomfort is, but it's in our suffering and discomfort and going against the tide of culture, which brings some of that discomfort that God produces two things in us, which of course is the title of our series. Number one, He produces holiness in us. And what this word holiness means for us is to be set apart from sin. I'm actually going to jump ahead a little bit before we get into our main passage, as my pages are being blown all over the place here. If you want to go to, we're already in 1 Peter chapter 1, but I want us to bump up to uh, verses 14 through 16. And this is what it says. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So as we are being, as we're getting this pushback against our faith, as we're experiencing discomfort because everybody that follows Christ is going to have to suffer in some degree, what God is doing is he's producing a holiness in us. And then what comes on the heels of holiness, believe it or not, even in the midst of your discomfort is a real hope. That's the other thing that God is trying to do in his mercy And through our suffering. And what hope is and how we would define hope is this. A confident expectation of future blessing based on facts and promises. Let me say that again. Hope, a confident expectation of future blessing based on facts and promises. So those are the two themes. Those are going to be the two overarching, like sort of anchor themes that we're going to see ourselves kind of going back to as we go through the book of 1 Peter. Well, let's just dive right in. First Peter chapter one, and it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And let's just stop right there for one second, because this is really an intense and theologically involved greeting from our boy Peter here. Now, Peter's letter is written to Greek-speaking Jews that were dispersed, hence that word, the dispersion, through what would be modern-day Turkey, who he refers to in verse 1 as elect exiles, right? That's what he says right off the top to those who are elect exiles. And the word exile refers to living in a land not of one's heritage, right? That's what exile means to us. Some of us understand that if we've moved to new areas and there's a part of, uh, there's, there's a part of sort of getting into the culture of the place we've moved where it feels foreign and we don't feel like it's our hometown because it's not our hometown. We didn't grow up there. We're not used to the traditions and the way that they go about things and the values that they hold. So that's what he's talking about when he says the word exile, living in a land not of one's heritage. So what Peter is doing is he's, he's keying in on the culture and environment that these Christian Jews are living in. And this, this would have brought back, okay, when he says this word exile, this would have brought back memories to the Jews of Egyptian and Babylonian captivity hundreds of years ago. Uh, in Jewish history, when they were just sort of yanked out of their homeland and brought into captivity. And these were times in Jewish history when God's people were subjected to a foreign rule because of their disobedience to God's command. So what would happen back in that day, in the Old Testament days, is that at some point, man, 
yeah, the Israelites just always turn to idol worship. Every time, it's like they just snap back to idol worship. The very things that God said, don't fall into the practices of those nations that hate me. And like clockwork, every time Israel just fell into those practices. And what he did a couple times in their history is he removed them from their land that he had originally brought them through. Remember the whole Moses thing, right? And what he did was he put them into captivity. So it's, it wasn't a, so when you, when you say the word exile to a Jew at this time, with this letter, the way Peter is writing it to these particular people, it's not going to evoke great memories. It's like when someone puts me on a dodgeball court. I'm just going to be honest with you. It evokes memories of less than pleasurable times. All right. Number one, being the last person picked for the team, right? Not a great memory. And two, getting pelted with hard rubber balls, right? I'm like an exile on the dodgeball court. Not a great time for me. It's not home for me. I don't get, I don't get picked on the dodgeball team and then head out to the dodgeball court and feel like, ah, great. I'm in my element now. That's not me. That would be a donut shop for me, to be quite honest with you guys. But look at what Peter does, all right? Look at what he does. He puts a twist into their exile. He's not just saying, oh, you guys are exiles, man. You're not home. How does that feel? No, he says, he says, you are elect exiles. He puts a twist into their exile status. He calls them elect exiles, which completely changes their position and their perspective. Because elect... This is what elect means. It means a group of people chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be his holy people set free from the bondage of sin by the righteousness of Christ. I tried like heck to make that sentence shorter, but I just couldn't. That's all I got. It's kind of like what Scott just pointed out to us when he read that Ephesians passage before our greeting. It is this. It means a group of people chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be his holy people, set free from the bondage of sin by the righteousness of Christ. This is a different kind of exile for these people. Even though they're living in a hostile, and we're going to see just how hostile the environment they're living in, right? Um, Their elected status before God means they're actually free from the tyranny of sin to not only endure the suffering that they are, are going to face, but to experience holiness and hope in the midst of it. And that's what we're going to see unfold through the weeks. And by the way, that is your status too. If you surrendered your life to Christ, you are in elect exile. I mean, it doesn't matter what you post on Facebook or Twitter. I don't care what your status updates are. Your true status at the end of the day regardless of where you're at, regardless of what your address is, is that you are elect exile. You are only visiting this planet. Philippians 3, Paul tells us in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he says, from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. He's referring to the pain and the suffering and the decay And the corrosion that we experience, he says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this planet is absolutely not our home. And that is one of the big themes that Peter is going to bring to us as we get into the book. So what is this elect status and how is it attained? Well, he, he, he says it in verse two, which gives us one of the, the clearest writings on the doctrine. And we say the word doctrine, we just mean teaching, but the doctrine of the Trinity in all the scripture. And by the Trinity, we mean three persons in one God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit working and functioning together to call us first off to save us And then secure us in salvation through Christ. Let me read verse 2. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is a heck of a greeting, man. I mean, that's a heck of a greeting. Look at those three things, those three elements that he takes us through. He said, God foreknows. That's what election means. God foreknows. He elects all those that he decides to save. In Romans 8, we read, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
which means he made a decision to save them, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there was a plan that God had in his foreknowledge to save us. And the second part of that is the Holy Spirit in sanctification applies the work of Christ to us. First Thessalonians 2 says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. This is Paul writing again, beloved of the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So he saved us not to just kind of drop us and let us lie dormant, but he saved us to sanctify us, to draw us more deeply into the image of Christ. That's what's happening after someone is saved. They're not just unchanging. They're changing. They're becoming more like Jesus. And then the final thing there is our faith is in the son who accomplishes the work of salvation by his blood. So in that we see God, the father, God, the son, uh, God, the Holy spirit. And in the son, we see this is who God sent to accomplish the work of salvation by his blood. In John six, Jesus said this, he answered them and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who was sent. So Jesus is the one who was sent that God is calling us to believe in. And when we make that decision that we do on the heels of God's choosing us to believe in him, then something starts happening inside of us where we start becoming like him. This is what Peter is writing in two verses right off the top to a letter to these churches in the dispersion, right? Right there. And Peter's readers are going to need just a ton's worth of hope and encouragement. We're going to see that. So what Peter does is he starts with what R.C. Sproul, theologian R.C. Sproul, calls the heart and soul of the Christian faith. So just that really brief sort of run-through we just went to right there of of our calling and our election. Man, that's what R.C. Sproul calls the heart and soul of the Christian faith, which is simply this, all right? You've been chosen by God, you've been saved by the work of Christ, and you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's the work of salvation. That is the reason why I preach. That is the reason why you gather here. It's the reason why Scott sings the songs he do, so that they'll just save that. That's what we're here to do. We're here to save that, we're here to be secure in that, and we're here to encourage one another in that. That's it, right there. And then he offers this amazing blessing of grace and peace at the end of verse 2 that, again, can only come from all three persons of the Trinity. All three persons functioning together as one God. Because he mentions two things that we actually just sang about, grace and peace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. And peace is having right standing with God through Christ, which we learned about last week when we went through First, Second Corinthians five. So this is how this is how Peter says hello. All right, this is Peter writing a letter. This is Peter's hello. Now I'm not trying to like greet shame us right now, right? But it kind of makes a high five and a hey, what's up feel a little thin, doesn't it? In the way that we sort of like you know deal and and, and greet with each other and and do those types of things. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, when a two-sentence greeting is able to express the core of our faith, I mean, what are, we, what are we saying? Like, what are we saying to encourage each other? I mean, sometimes I'll just text a dude, and I'll, it'll just be like a letter. You know what I mean? It's like, what am I even saying? Or, hey. You know, I don't even say, what's up? I just say, hey. You know, or like if it's somebody I really know, like Scott, I just go, dude. I mean, yeah, that's it. Done. We're done. That's the answer. That's the greeting, right? Well, that's, that's not Peter. But then Peter does something even more unusual, which is he must have been feeling just real, really highly creative because what he does in the next three verses, which is the extent of what we're going to go through this morning, he just decides to pen a hymn. He says, you know what? I'm going to write you guys a little song. I'm going to write you a little song of praise that I'm going to kick off this whole letter with. I'm going to let you choose, you know, the chords and the arrangement. But this is what he did. He literally penned a hymn, a hymn of praise, which is what we also use a more formal term for when we call, call it a doxology. And that's what Peter does right here. So here we are in verse 3. This is Peter, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what an incredible passage there. It mimics a lot of passages you'll read by Paul if you read Philippians and Ephesians and Galatians. So why does Peter start with this? Why does Peter start with a hymn of praise? Why does he begin with that? Why did he begin like that with this doxology? Because most of us probably wouldn't launch into a rendition of 10,000 reasons the minute we sit down with a hurting person, right? I mean, that's probably not going to be the way that I like go about it. Am I right? You know? Why does Peter start his letter with what we call this doxology? I mean, is he just a massively insensitive guy? I mean, he knows the people that he's writing to, right? I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that about Peter after, you know, kind of hearing a little bit of his resume. But there's a reason why Peter started this. And what we're going to see is that what Peter does here, what's so important about what he does here, is that he grounds a hurting people in the living hope of Jesus by anchoring them in his mercy and salvation. He's giving them from the very beginning what it is that they actually need. And we see that right when we go into 3a there when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that word Father is important for us because it gives us a picture of the relationship that God now has with us because of the work of Christ in our hearts. And he says, according to his great mercy, let's just stop right there on that part. According to his great mercy. So there is an ever growing army of babies at substance right now, right? I mean, can we just be honest about that? I didn't, I didn't plan it that way. And uh, some of you didn't either. Let's be honest. But thankfully God did. All right. A helpful way to understand God's mercy is, uh, is by our babies, I think, who, who we know are born completely helpless. Now, babies, here's what's interesting about babies. They, uh, they contribute absolutely nothing. All right. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate babies. I, I have an older baby myself. Um, but look, you, you talk to, I don't even know if they're here. You talk to Kyle and Emily Gordon, who just had their son Easton a couple of weeks ago. I mean, we love him. All right. We love, we love Easton, but that kid has no ability to do anything. Don't be offended, Easton, when you hear this podcast in 20 years, if we still have those things. Nor is Easton required to do anything but eat and sleep and sleep preferably between the hours of 7 p.m. and 6 a.m., right? It's literally the best life that Easton is ever going to get right now. But the reason Easton enjoys this, what all of us would consider a very luxurious lifestyle, is because of the great mercy that his parents show him in their provision for him. Are you guys following me on that? Because spiritually speaking, we are all like Easton, okay? We're helpless to feed, clothe, and change ourselves spiritually until God mercifully gives us new birth and helps us in our desperate and crazy and depraved helplessness. We had no hope of knowing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ until he chose us according to his great mercy. That's why that line is so significant. We don't want to glide past that. We just sang, in tenderness, he sought me, weary and sick with sin. That, that's, that seeking out that God does, it's because of his mercy for us. It's because he's not giving us something that we deserve, which is punishment. What it means is that God has withheld his wrath, his punishment against us. Because the penalty of death due for our sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. By the sprinkling of his blood, which he just pointed out to us in verse 2. And that was an Old Testament reference about the priests who would take the blood of the animals when they were making sacrifices and atonements for the sin of the people. And they would throw it against the altar and it meant that death has happened and that a sacrifice has been paid or atoned for. That's why it's mercy, by the way. Right? If we didn't deserve punishment for our sin, there would be no reason for God to bestow his mercy on us. Or that it should be described as anything so great. 
Because he says, according to his great mercy here. Remember that the next time you think like, hey, man, I'm good. I'm all right. Because according to his great mercy would tell us an entirely different story. It means that something has been paid for for you. All right. So my wife and I ate at this. Uh, we ate at this new restaurant yesterday. It was called Core Life Eatery. Now, if you're one of these guys that like you know hates quinoa and kale, I mean, this is not going to be your jam. I'm just going to be honest with you right now. But uh, you know, we're we're trying to make that our jam right now. Don't hate us. And uh, so we decided to go to Core Life Eatery. And uh, so we get our pitiful bowls of like quinoa and organic beans and. Just horrible stuff. I mean, let me just be honest with you. And, uh, you know, we're walking up. You know, normally lunch should be like a really, you know, celebratory occasion because I'm starving. I'm just walking up all all right, you know. And uh, we walk up to the register and, uh, you know, we we throw it all down there. You know, I'm holding my, you know, my well-worn ATM card, you know, just dropping it on the counter. And she said, um, oh, that's no charge. You know, I'm looking around and I'm like, like, this is like the free restaurant, like, like, literally, I need to move. If that's the case, man, literally, it's going to be three squares a day at Core Life Eatery for me. And she said, no, it's, it's been covered. And I said, well, I go, what, what do you mean? She just said, it's been covered. And I said, okay, I'll say it again. What do you mean? And she said, I don't know how to say it any clearer. It's been covered. The owner paid. And we just, well, we didn't meet, the, we hadn't met the owner or anything. And, uh, but he paid for us. He must have saw us coming. Um, here's the thing, man. I, I deserved, I, I deserved to pay for that pitiful bowl of kale. I deserved to pay for that. I mean, I was gobbling that thing up. Like I'd never had a square meal in my life, but the owner paid. The owner chose to pay. He wasn't obligated. I mean, that, that was his kale. I owed him for it. He was not obligated, but he paid for us. And this is a picture of God's great mercy to us and that he sent Jesus to pay for our sin. Do you need to revisit or visit that, that truth? Because it's a startling truth for us when we consider God's mercy. Peter, he was pretty acquainted with that. He was well acquainted with God's mercy. And maybe there's going to come a time in our life where God, God's hand is going to bear down on us in a way that we're going to become more well acquainted with his mercy. God is good in that he does that. And sometimes we like to call that a severe mercy, but it's good. It's good for us because we finally understand the price that was paid. Because without the mercy of God, I mean, can we just talk right now? Without the mercy of God, do you realize every story has the same ending without God's mercy? It's all the same ending. I got an older brother who is just, he's in his 50s. He's a lot older than I am. And, uh, man, he's, he's wrecked because he's not lived a life of mercy. He's not lived a life of mercy. And his story is not any different than any of the other members of my family who have lived a life without God's mercy. Every road has the same ending. There's nothing original. There's nothing different. There's there's not like some of it veers off this way or that way. There are no exceptions in a life lived without the mercy of God. But Peter, Peter starts here by reminding his readers that the end of their story has been edited. It's been changed. The road they're on leads to life now because God's mercy intervened in their life, which is why they receive salvation. All the practical things Peter is going to help them through later on in, in, in the book, it's, it's predicated on God's mercy. That's where it starts. It has to start there, right? Let's read verse 3, the second part of verse 3, because what mercy leads to is salvation. What mercy leads to is salvation. The second part of 3 says, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, mercy predicates rebirth into a resurrection hope. 
I mean, it's like we just want to raise our hands and just go, yeah, right? I mean, you see how Peter encourages these brothers and sisters before he even mentions a word about suffering? Isn't that weird? Like, if I wrote a letter to somebody and something just happened to them, like, the first thing out of my mouth would be like, dude, I'm so, like, man, I'm so sorry to hear what happened. Like, I'm so sorry for you. I'm praying for you. Do you see where Peter leads with this? He leads into God's election and calling and regeneration. All those big words. And then he heads straight to God's mercy. And then straight into God's salvation. Which, of course, again, comes as the result of God's mercy. He says Christ's suffering, Christ's suffering is what he's saying here. Christ's suffering ended on Resurrection Sunday. And we've been rebirthed into that same resurrection hope that is now in our possession. Which is what he means when he's talking about inheritance there. When he moves on into saying it's, it's uh, we, uh, the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That's what he's talking about. It's an inheritance that Paul tells us in Ephesians is this. This is what he means by inheritance. It's redemption through Christ's blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, and the riches of his grace sealed by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. It's an inheritance that Peter describes in verse 4 as we keep going on here as being imperishable. What that means, it's lasting. It doesn't die. It's a lasting inheritance. It's a lasting salvation. It's undefiled. That means it never gets damaged. We never have to worry about it like breaking. You know, like I got all this like tile, you know, that we have on our counters. And if you lean too, too heavy on the, on the half of you guys that have been to my house have done that. Your lean goes clunk like that. You know, all, everything breaks down. It, it just, it's, it's defiled. Like somebody that put it together, just put it together in a way that the eventuality of it was going to break. But our inheritance is undefiled. It never gets damaged. He said it's unfading. It never wears out. It never needs a paint job, right? It never needs new tires or new brakes. It's unfading. And then he says it's kept in heaven. It's guaranteed. It won't get lost. It's, it's in a secure place. You know, we're really big on like lifetime guarantees, aren't we? I always kind of crack up about lifetime guarantees because I just, I don't care. But has a lifetime guarantee, let me just, because it has, so I'm not saying I'm like beyond this, all right? But like, here's the, here's a question for you. Has a lifetime guarantee ever sold you on a product? Come on. Let's see it. Kendra Petrus, Casey Bond, you know, you guys are going to get those $5,000 checks after the service for raising your hand. We're not that kind of church. I'm just kidding. But has a lifetime guarantee ever sold you on a product? And if it has, have you ever asked why? Why? Why do you want something to last longer than you'll live to enjoy it? Like, why is that? Well, it's actually because God has put eternity into our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has written eternity into our hearts. Death is unnatural. Things fading and dying and being perishable. It doesn't come natural to us. It wasn't part of the original order that God established. Eternity is what our hearts find familiar. It's why we want things to last. It's why we have a longing for things that will not go away. It's why we love permanence. Because there was a time when we had it back in the garden. But this inheritance that we have, this, this is the permanence. This is the eternal weight of glory that God gives to us through Christ. Romans 8, 17 says we are heirs of God. That's the inheritance. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We receive the things that Christ has coming. We receive those things. And it says provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So we have a secure inheritance, but we also have a sure suffering. That is what leads us and sanctifies us and grows us in holiness and hope that leads to that inheritance. So what Peter is doing is he's assuring these people that God protects the investment he made with Christ for their salvation. Salvation is our deliverance from sin. 
That's the inheritance that will one day come to completion when we go home to meet the Lord in glory. That's what he means when he says it's kept in heaven and it's waiting to be revealed to you in a later day. That's what he means. If it makes, listen, if it makes no difference to you whether God has your salvation guarded, you need to ask if you have a salvation to be guarded. If the hope of this promise produces indifference in you, you need to pray. I don't have anything more like theologically astute than that. If this just creates a dullness and an, and an indifference in you, you need to pray. And here's what I mean. If what we're reading drives you to praise or prayer, it means the Holy Spirit is alive and working in you. So you might be in a place where you're just flattened and you're so dull and these things have been lying dormant in you. But if something is stirring in you, that's not me. That's not the loud mouth up here right now. That's the Holy Spirit working his truth about this inheritance that Peter is talking about in your heart and in your soul. Don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. Listen to that. Pray in that. If we're given news this good, the news that Peter is writing and giving this suffering people, if we're given news this good, we should explore why it ceases to be such great news for us. So as we close, that's what I'm going to do for the next few minutes. I want to explore why this incredibly hopeful, heart-changing, life-altering news, what are some of the reasons why it ceases to be such great news for us. It's interesting that Peter starts, all right, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before he gets to salvation. I mean, he just starts right with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He starts with the Trinity. I, I mean, again, you, you got to, I mean, I mean, think about Peter penning a letter to churches that are going through what these churches were going through. You know, he doesn't say, dear churches, you've been saved. Have a great week. Yours truly, Pete. That's not what he does here at, at, at all. Salvation finds its anchor in Jesus Christ, right? But what we've done is we've de-anchored salvation in some ways. Some of us treat it kind of like this escape from hell only contract that God has a sign and then says, okay, not going to bother you anymore. We'll check in in 86 years, Right? But if that's the case, if that's how you've been thinking of salvation, if that's the case, what happens when you experience suffering? What happens then? Because it's going to be hard to endure if you believe life with Jesus doesn't begin until you die. If that's really what you think, if it's just get out of hell free card, then what happens when you experience pain and trials and disappointment and grief. I just got to suck it up until I die. And if you live in Ohio, that's probably like 140 years because you live forever here. You know? But Peter says something different here. Peter talks about rebirth, doesn't he? He says, you've been reborn. That means we have a life that begins now. I mean, I, mean I, I remember when our daughter was born, she, you know, she wasn't born and we didn't like grab her and then just like, you know, put her on the table and say, all right, we'll check in with you in 15 years when life begins. I, I, we've, been, we've been reborn. That life begins now. But some of us don't see it that way, do we? What is that life? Well, it's a life found in nothing less than the face and faithfulness of an alive person. That life, that living hope, is the very face and person of Jesus Christ. But when we think of a living hope, all right, follow me here. When we think of a living hope, which is what Peter's laying out for us, it's funny what our minds default to, isn't it? It's funny that sometimes our minds default to just the material benefits of hope. So, like, if you guys know my wife, Melissa, I mean, you, man, she is just, she's a stellar cook. She's just been blessed with the goods. 
She knows how to cook. She knows how to season. Everything's fantastic. Even the stuff that's not good is good, right? But believe it or not, and I hope maybe this is the first time she's going to hear this, but I didn't marry her because she knows how to make like a mean double cheeseburger. Babe, you know that. Like, that's not why we got hitched, right? I married her for her. So maybe you've misidentified. Could it be that maybe you've misdefined hope? Like it's a product more than a person? Like when you think of hope, you think of the benefits of hope rather than the person and the face and the anchor of the hope, right? Jesus is the true and living hope. Jesus is our true inheritance. We get, you know what we get according to God's great mercy? We get Jesus. That's first and foremost and primary what we get. Ronnie, I thought it was a harp, uh, the ability to fly in eternal youth. I thought that's what I had coming. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he has those things planned up there for us, right? I mean, I'm not too like jacked up about the hard part, but I, you know, eternal youth and flying sounds fun, right? But, you know, we laugh a little bit about those things, but those things don't have the ability to sustain us. The hope of that doesn't have the ability to sustain me when trials and suffering comes. Knowing that like my finances are going to be all in order, knowing that I might have some good health, still not the ability to sustain and secure me when trials and suffering comes. And people's writing to a people who are already suffering. Isn't it strange that this is what he starts with? He doesn't just tell them about the salvation they're going to have tomorrow. He tells them about the Savior they have today. Man, there's a huge difference, isn't there? And I think we think really wrongly. We default to thinking really wrongly about that. Because when we're born again, which he talks about here, born again to a living hope, it means we're born out of a previous life. That's what it means to be reborn. A life that was deathly. It was a deathly life. We talked about that. That lacked understanding of God's truth. Before Christ, we only had a kind of hope. We had some kind of hope, but it was a kind of hope. But it was, it was incomplete It was an incomplete hope. It was faulty. It was thin. It was like wishing upon a star level hope. It was hoping that if there was like a blue fairy and if all the stars lined up, something might happen that's good for me in the future. It was a superstitious hope. Because hope without Christ can only ever be superstitious. It's dumb luck every time. So here's my question. Has this kind of illusory sort of, you know, hologram image of hope, has that carried over from an old life of the way you once understood what hope is? Look what Peter says in verse 20. Chapter 120, he said, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He's talking about Christ. 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that, there it is, so that your faith and hope are where? In God. In God. God sent his son so that hope might exist for human beings. That's an end game for God, is hope. It's big. He cares about you being hopeful. But it has to rest on not the product, but the person of hope. If our hope is not the living hope embodied in the person of Jesus, when problems, when struggles, when suffering arise, you know the best thing we got? The best thing we have is to simply employ methods in an attempt to get through them. Because maybe for you, Christianity has been about living a hopeful life without being rooted in a hopeful person. Could that be? Do you see how easy it would be for us to do this? Because for me, growing up, okay, today, I hate it when pastors say growing up because it makes it sound like that we've arrived 
Sorry, that was a flub. But I'm not going to edit that out. Today, a living hope for me, my default, is comfort and security and safety and financial security and a a future that I can bank on, that I can know, that I can somehow get an hourglass in front of me and see what's going to happen. But it's not the face of Jesus. So hope, many times, becomes simply an emotion that patterns itself under the rise and fall of those things. And what happens is when we do that, because you do that too, I'm not just saying that to make myself feel better. I know that you do that too. Hope becomes cheaper. It becomes less than what God intended. It becomes more worldly. Hope can't just be a feeling of security or expectation in a movable object. The object of hope has to be a person for the benefits of hope to be a real thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Real hope has to have a face attached to it. And that face has to be immovable or it's not hope. Have anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? All right. Three of you. All right. So they have this thing at the Grand Canyon called the Skywalk. It's really one of the most terrifying things like you'll ever see. It's this path that sticks out of like the, you know, the ledge of the Grand Canyon. It's like a horseshoe and it comes around like that. It's this horseshoe shaped bridge with a glass walkway. Yeah, sign me up. I'm on it, you know. The only way I'm getting on that bridge is if I can be assured that that thing doesn't move an inch. All right? I mean, if they they set up like a little suspension bridge, you know, on the Grand Canyon or the thing's wobbling up and down, I mean, I'm not going to get on that thing because it's movable. It's going to alter my existence most likely, right? Because I tend to be a little klutzy. When it comes to bridges, I'm not going to lie to you guys right now. But we need something immovable. Because our lives are movable. And our lives are going to face times and challenges when we need a rescuer. And when you're being rescued, here's what's interesting. When the person has their hand in your hand and they are pulling you from death. Who are you focused on at that moment? Who are you focused on? When you're in the clutches of death and somebody is pulling you from that, who are you focused on? Man, you're not thinking of a warm bed at that time. You're not thinking of hot dinner. You're not thinking of cuddling with your spouse. You're not thinking of vacationing in Hilton Head. You're not wondering where the savings account was the last time you checked. When you're teetering on the edge of that movable life suspension bridge. You're not doing any of that. You're focused on one person. You're focused on the rescuer. Don't forget who your rescuer is. It's the face of God in Jesus Christ. Because trials and suffering, what that means is that someday you're going to lose something. Some of you here have lost something recently. But all of us are going to lose something. How will you endure if your eyes are searching for the face of something other than the face of your rescuer? If Christ ceases to be our living hope, we will put a greater value on our losses than the one who cannot be lost. Isn't it strange that we do that? What good is salvation... What good is an inheritance if we live like people who have something greater to lose than what we've gained in Christ? Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing who? The blessings of Christ? No, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Because at the end here... This is what I'm afraid of that we do, that we default to, is that we, we, we treat Christ like jolly old Saint Nick. That's who we treat Jesus like. Saint Nick, man, he knows if you've been bad or good, right? He knows uh, when you've been sleeping. He, he knows when you're away. It gets a little creepy with Saint Nick. Let's, let's be honest. I don't want him like peering into the bedroom on me like that. But here's what happens with Saint Nick, all right? Once a year, he gives you what you want if you've been good. 
He's good for it, right? St. Nick is good for that. And some of us live our lives thinking of Christ like St. Nick. But you know what you don't get with St. Nick? You don't get St. Nick with St. Nick. You don't get Santa. He's not invested in your life. He shows up when you want something. But where is that dude the rest of the time? Do you think of Jesus that way? Because Peter had been brought through a level of trial and suffering that he didn't have. He didn't have the ability to look at Jesus that way anymore because Peter encountered Jesus. In a little snapshot of Peter's life, Peter was called by Jesus. Remember, he's called out of being a fisherman. His feet were washed by Jesus. He was convicted by Jesus. He was rebuked by Jesus. He was fed by Jesus. When Peter talked about a living hope, he's talking about a living person. And that's why the person of Jesus has to be the object of our hope. Because Jesus laid down his life. Jesus raised the life of his friend Lazarus. Jesus had mercy on an adulterous woman. Jesus washed the feet of his tired friends. Jesus forgave the men who abandoned him. Jesus cooked breakfast for those men when they were heartbroken. Jesus let his doubting friend Thomas feel his scars. Everything the friends of Jesus received, we receive from Jesus. Let the face of Jesus be your living hope through everything you will face today and for the future as we are sanctified in holiness and secured in hope. Verse 13, as we end. We're going to get to this verse, but I want to close with it right now. Because Peter eventually gets to this and says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The living hope is not a product. It's a person that God will use to produce holiness and hope in the life of those he has chosen to save. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for the miraculous work that you have done in mercifully saving us, foreknowing us, calling us, sending your spirit to sanctify us, sending your son to be a sacrifice at the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body. Thank you that this is the foundation of true hope. Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds would be drawn to the face of Jesus. We know that you give us many blessings as the inheritance that we've received in you because of Christ. But Lord, we want our primary focus to rest securely on the face of Jesus so that he is our anchor when we experience the trials of suffering that you also promised we would. Lord, give us great encouragement and hope this morning in the face, in the promise, in the person of Jesus Christ, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.